Good morning, ladies. Heaven is coming. A few weeks ago, my family was driving down the highway, and I turned to my two-year-old daughter, and I said, Heidi, when we park the car, I'm going to write my phone number on your hand, so if you can't find me, you go find someone who looks like a mommy, and you tell her to call me. My daughter was immediately concerned. (laughs) She had a lot of questions and worries. The peace that we had had moments before, happily driving, were replaced with anxious thoughts. She didn't want me to leave her, and she also did not want numbers on her hand. (laughs) She couldn't understand why I might not be with her, but I knew that she needed to be prepared for this possibility because we were about to head into Disney World at max capacity. My daughter was frightened when I brought up the idea that I could be absent. And she was worried that that meant that I might not care for her. And for the sake of ease, you know, I could have just assumed everything's going to be fine because, of course, it was. But it was actually better for me, it was better for her and for me to prepare her so that she could have peace in that potential moment and remember that I cared about her and wanted her to be with me and be able to take action. Just like my daughter felt concerned about my care for her and what would happen if I wasn't there, we can believe that because Jesus is not here with us because he's physically not here, he's not actively caring for us. We think that Christ's absence can mean that his care and his peace are absent. And when we think Christ's care and peace are absent, we become troubled, anxious, confused, worried. We live like people who don't have peace. So as we study John 16, 16 through 33 together, we're going to see that Jesus is telling his disciples and us the reason that he has said everything that we've studied this weekend. I put it at the top of your outline for you on page 14, 15, page 15. In John 16, 33, Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So this morning we're gonna see that peace is possible in Jesus even when he's physically absent. Let me pray. Lord, give us ears to hear hearts that are open to your word. Help us to be encouraged by the hope of heaven and help us to know that you care deeply for us. Thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Go ahead and open your Bibles to John 16, 16 or turn in your packets to page 14 and read with me this morning. This is Jesus speaking. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father? So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, 
a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn it to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered her baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask for nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that you will ask the Father, that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I have come from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. If peace is possible in Jesus, even when he's physically absent, how can we live in the peace that Jesus has promised? Like verse 33 at the top of your outline says, we must take heart. Today we're going to see three ways we can experience the peace that Jesus promised. Peace is possible in Jesus when we take heart and remember that the resurrection is coming, that we have complete access to the Father, and that victory is secure. This is your first point. Take heart. The resurrection is coming. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 22. Peace comes when we believe the resurrection is coming and that it brings joy And to live in this peace, we can't get stuck on the timing of joy, and we can't get stuck on the sorrow before joy. So don't get stuck on the timing of joy. One thing is clear at the beginning of this passage, and it is that the disciples are confused. Look at them repeating the same thing over and over again as they try to process what Jesus is saying. Look at verses 16 and 17. They literally repeat the exact same thing that Jesus had just said, and then Jesus repeats it back to them. So why are they struggling to understand Jesus? Why doesn't what Jesus is saying to them make sense? As we study the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we can see that the disciples actually thought that all of the promises of the Messiah are going to happen right away. In fact, today is Palm Sunday, And it's a day that uh, is remembering when Jesus triumphantly entered into Jerusalem. And this was four days before this conversation happened. So they thought that the Messiah, that Jesus would stay and lead an earthly kingdom right away. So it makes sense that they can't understand why Jesus would say he's going away, right? Like they just literally watched him ride into town on a donkey and people are waving palm branches, 
And if we look, we can see that really their main issue is with the phrase, a little while. It's used seven times in four verses. And we, we, on this side of the cross, can look at the little while, and we know the resurrection's coming, right? But the disciples had to grapple with the truth that Jesus' plan involved a little while of terrible And, you know, this can really seem like the opposite of peace. In fact, for the disciples, it surely was a time without, that seemed like it had no peace, without comfort. So why didn't Jesus just tell them when a little while would be over? Why didn't he just say, it's only three days, guys. You'll be okay. And I think that's because it's not about the amount of time. It's about the end result. We can have peace even if the peaceful end is not immediate. Here, the disciples are having trouble because they aren't focused on the end result. They're stuck on the timing. And it can feel in the little while that it is a long, never-ending while. But the end result will win. If we don't keep our eyes focused on the college degree that we're working for, there's no purpose in finishing the paper, right? It's just a striving with no end. But the college degree, when that's in sight, as terrible, and it is often truly terrible, as the research project is, the research paper, it's just going to take a little while, and you're not only going to have more knowledge, but ultimately you're going to have the college degree, The end result here that Jesus is pointing to is the resurrection. Jesus is able to say, a little while, because the amount of time it takes to get the resurrection is worth going through for the sake of the resurrection itself. Jesus defeating death. All sin being paid for, restored relationship with the Father. The resurrection is promising joy and peace through Jesus. In fact, all of the promises that Shannon, Megan, and Sarah have shared this weekend find their fullness in the resurrection. It's the key. It's the key to this weekend. Home, rest, true identity, supernatural victory, growth, change, all are possible because of the resurrection. So don't be impatient as you wait for the end results of the hardships of life. You can have peace. Why don't you go back in your text and underline each of the little whiles, each of the seven times. It's twice in 16, it's twice in 17, it's in 18, and it's twice in 19. Whatever is keeping you from peace, with each underline, remind yourself of the resurrection. The resurrection is promising you peace and joy through Jesus. And this isn't a, if you manifest it, you'll get it, because it's not about you. This peace is outside of you. You don't have to create it on your own. That's why the disciples can have peace when he says, a little while, because he's pointing them outside of themselves to the resurrection. It's the foundation And believing the resurrection means that we can be patient in this little while and and not get stuck 
on the timing of joy, but we can also fight against despair and not get stuck on the sorrow before joy. Don't get stuck on the sorrow before joy. Now, when I say despair, I want to be clear that I'm not saying sorrow. You are allowed to be sad. You you can see here that Jesus doesn't cover up the pain that they're experiencing, right? He doesn't pretend that everything is just roses, but he does expect us to fight against despair. And despair means no hope, no peace, no joy. Look at verses 20 and 22 with me. You can see that Jesus is telling the disciples here that they will weep and lament. They will be sorrowful. The world will be rejoicing at what's causing their sorrow. And that pain is coming. Jesus is going to die on the cross. And that's what he's preparing them for. For their friend, their mentor, their brother, the one they gave up everything for, to die for his absence. And this is really a true and deep loss. And some of you in this room, this really resonates with you. You've felt this before. And at the same time here, Jesus is promising joy from that sorrow. And he uses the same verb, will. Your sorrow will turn into joy. You have sorrow now, but your hearts will rejoice. How can joy come from all this pain? Jesus answers this question with an illustration. And I think it's really interesting that he uses this illustration when he's talking to a group of men. This is actually a really great illustration for us. Do you see it there in verse 21? Childbirth. And let me tell you, it is shocking how true it is that when you have delivered a baby, you forget how painful it is to deliver a baby. When I was in labor with my second child, I literally remember lying there on the bed saying, why? Why am I doing this again? And I I had known the pain was coming because I had had a natural childbirth with both of my children, and that means you don't take pain meds. Why? I don't know. So... I have this memory of the feelings, and I have a memory of the why. Like, I have that memory. I thought this was bad. But I can literally look at any baby and think, I should have another one of those. (laughs) And I think it's because, one, I only remember a shadow of the pain that got me my sweet babies, and it's worth it for the baby. And saying that I would like another baby, you know, that doesn't minimize the pain that I previously felt. Hard things are hard. And sorrowful things are sorrowful. But man, the end result is really worth it if you're willing to go through it again. And here Jesus, he's not trying to minimize the disciples' pain. And he's not trying to discredit it. He knows it's real. He will experience this pain and greater pain too. Jesus is saying that joy will come and it will be more permanent than the pain. This might feel very hard. 
or perhaps true for others who have not experienced what you have experienced. You are allowed to feel bothered by this idea, maybe even a little angry about it. Because the truth is that Jesus sees your pain. Jesus experienced your pain, your loss. Jesus died on the cross experiencing excruciating pain, physical pain, and he carried the weight of all of our sin, all of humanity's sin, while he did that. Here Jesus promises joy to the disciples before he is about to go and bear the cost of what makes that joy possible. Perhaps your season of sorrow doesn't seem to have an end, and you are carrying the weight of what really seems like a permanent problem. And if this is you, I'm really sorry. I'm sorry it doesn't seem like you will have joy in this situation right now, but I do believe you can have peace. I truly believe you can have peace, and that peace comes when we look at the resurrection and the promise that we too will experience the fullness of the resurrection in Jesus. This brings peace as we trust that our current situation is not the end. Jesus knew that his death would feel like the end to the disciples and that they would feel lost and confused and hopeless. They would feel like the enemy had won. They would feel like the battle was over and that they couldn't have peace. But that was not the end. Peace comes when we understand that what we can see and feel is limited, but that we serve someone who is not. Peace comes when we look at and see the lasting joy that the resurrection brings. Heaven. That's what Johnny Erickson Tata was talking about. The disciples were told that Jesus' return would bring them joy. We will also experience joy at Jesus' return, his second return, when he comes to bring us home to himself. No matter the season you're in right now, heaven is coming, and with it, full healing, full health, full joy, full peace. So what can you do to take heart and live like the resurrection is coming? I have two thoughts for you. You can ask others for help. You need help seeing the big picture of life when you get stuck on the timing of joy or in the sorrow that comes. We can get bogged down on the details of things and just see what we're seeing and feeling and we lose sight of what God is doing. Our friends who aren't in the same season or the same you know, mess that we're in can help us to have perspective. I'd also really encourage you to ask God for help when you get stuck on joy's timing or in the sorrow before joy. Please pray and talk to your father. We'll see this more in our next point. But if there's ever something you know to be true that you are having trouble believing is true, pray and ask God for help. He wants you to believe true things. Jesus literally took all of this time to pause and tell the disciples to help them believe true things. God will also help you. And take time to read your Bible. All of scripture is God-breathed, God's word to you. 
in a season of joy, in a season of sorrow, sitting down and spending time with the God who made you, reading his words to you, will bring you peace. This isn't a magic pill, right? This is a practice that day by day leads to peace. If you're looking for places in the Bible to understand what the resurrection means and how it can bring joy, maybe I can make two suggestions for you. You could read Isaiah chapter 9 and see how Jesus is foretold and what that will look like. And you could read Romans chapter 8 and see what it looks like to live a life safe and secure in the gospel. Peace is possible in Jesus, even when he's physically absent. So Jesus had just told his disciples how they can have peace as they patiently wait for joy. Take heart, the resurrection is coming. In the next section, Jesus is going to show us another way that they can have peace. So this is your second point. Take heart, you have complete access to the Father. We're going to look at verses 23 through 28. Peace is possible in Jesus because he has opened the door to the Father. We can have peace because we have direct access to the Father in Jesus' name and because we have personal access to the Father. We have direct access in Jesus' name. Look at your scripture with me. Jesus starts this section in verse 23 with the phrase, in that day. And here he's referring to life post-resurrection. This isn't a specific day. It's more of an age or a season. And it's actually the time that we are currently living in. So this is the day when the disciples' sorrow will be turned to joy because Jesus will have returned from the grave when he's defeated death, paid the cost of sin, and torn the curtain that keeps us from God. So now, in this time, the disciples and us have direct access to God in Jesus' name. Do you see in verses 23 and 24 that twice Jesus tells them to ask in his name? And in 23, he says, if they do this, they'll get what they're asking for. And in 24, that they'll have full joy. And we can also see in verse 24 that this is something new. They have asked nothing in Jesus' name before this time. So, we should really think about what does it mean to ask in Jesus' name? And and Shannon talked about this on Sunday night, right? And Jesus' name, the idea of Jesus' name is all that is true about Jesus. It's the totality of his person and his work. So that means when we ask in Jesus' name, we are coming to God in the authority of Jesus And when we use his name, we are claiming the person of Christ and the work of Christ. So we are, in essence, believing the gospel. Perhaps you've prayed this way your entire life, but haven't really understood what it meant. Why end prayers? In Jesus' name, amen. It's not a secret code or a magic statement. It's a declaration of alignment with Jesus. And it's only when we're aligned with Jesus that we have access to God. You've seen things like this in the movies, right? Like, you know, the name of the guy standing at the door. You get into the party. With Jesus, we have access to God, the Father. And, you know, when the disciples first started following Jesus, they would really have been shocked by the way he spoke about God. He was constantly calling him Father. 
And there are a few places in the Old Testament that refer to God as Father and um, a few where they pray to God as their Father, but they didn't refer to God as Father in this personal way that Jesus did. At the beginning of his ministry, it would have been really startling for the disciples to see how Jesus talked about God. And it was really certainly shocking for the religious leaders, right? Like that's part of the reason they're going to kill him in a few hours is because they perceive this as blasphemy. Even more shocking is that Jesus tells his followers they should also call God their father. And how can they do this? In Jesus' name. It's a privilege, right, for each of us to be able to call our parents mom and dad. And it's a privilege because it evokes certain rights. Sometimes my daughter will call my husband by his first name to get his attention. Nick! And when she does this, I correct her. I say, no, you call him daddy. That's a privilege. Only you and Henry get to call him daddy. So then when my daughter comes and asks to play or to read or calls out in the night because she needs something, Daddy says yes. And that's just a tip, right, of the privilege that comes with calling him her father. Now, through Jesus, we have, are able to ask the father for whatever we might need. And this is just the beginning of layers and layers of privilege and access. We have this privilege because he's our father, we don't need an in-between to talk to him. We have Jesus' name. We have the gospel. That's all we need. Have peace. We can be reconciled to God. Have peace. Your reality is that he hears you because of Christ's completed work. And Jesus isn't like conveying these prayers to God. See, in verse 26, he says, I don't say, I'll ask the Father. Jesus isn't there whispering our prayers into the Father's ear. That's not what this means. Through Jesus, we're able to have direct access to God. We pray right to him. This should bring us peace because we don't have to fear praying wrong or getting the steps wrong. In Jesus' name, we have complete access to God, our Father. Sit for a minute in that reality. In our sin, God is far from us because our sin, sin separates us from him, and it must, because he is holy and perfect. In Jesus, in the gospel, God is our father. We are close, protected, heard. Think about that. God hears you. Not only do we have direct access to the father, we have personal access to the father. Let's read verses 26 and 27 again. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. So as you remember, Jesus is about to leave the disciples for a little while and then for a long while, and he takes a moment here to clear the air. Does the Father really love them? Or does the father just kind of put up with them because Jesus asked him to? Jesus really makes it clear here. The father loves them. 
Why? Through their relationship with Jesus, it's that their father's love is fully known to them. This is personal love. This isn't some kind of secondary love, right? There's this interesting phenomenon that you will experience as your friendships grow. Your friends start to get into relationships. And they become serious, and then they lead to marriage. And, you know, I was single for a number of years, and it seemed like all of my friends were getting married. Suddenly, when I had one friend, now I had two friends. (laughs) And, you know, I really enjoy all of my friends' husbands. But primarily, I enjoy them because they're the husband of my friend. This is not what is happening with us and the Father. He loves us because he loves us. This is a direct personal relationship. It isn't just Jesus that loves us. The Father doesn't just love us because Jesus died for us. He loves us. If you are a Christian, you can rest assured that this love isn't dependent on who you are or what you've done. It's dependent on the Father. And it's secure because the Father is secure. Furthermore, this means that the disciples could trust the Father to hear and answer their requests, right? They didn't need to be anxious that when Jesus was physically absent, no one would care about them. Jesus had been meeting all of their needs while he was physically with them, and now they're going to have to go to the Father. And they can have peace. The Father will care for them. The Father will answer their questions because he loves them. We don't need to be afraid or anxious that the Father's love will leave us. We have a secure, personal relationship with the Father because of Jesus' death and resurrection. Have you noticed that in these chapters we've been studying, the disciples haven't just been like sitting and listening. They've been asking questions of Jesus. Imagine how they must have felt thinking that Jesus was leaving. Who's going to answer all of our questions? In verse 24, Jesus says, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Anyone who knows Jesus can ask the Father their questions. And the Father will meet all their needs because he loves them. We can ask the Father for answers to the questions of life we have. And as we know God, we start to ask for the things that he wants. And this is a part of our personal relationship with the Father. We're personally connected to him. And more and more, we want the things that he wants. And then when we ask, the things, ask for the things, we're actually asking for what he already wants. And to his delight, he gives us those things. And this is not just true about like tangible things. This is true about intangible things. Feelings, desires, all those things that bubble up inside of us and threaten the peace that we have in Jesus. Peace comes when we submit to the Father and pray for what he wants. And we know what he wants because the scriptures tell us. The Father loves you. Pray for a life that honors him and relationships that honor him. You will have peace not because you have perfect relationships, but because you're living in relationship, relationships with others in a way that honors God. Pray for a future that brings glory to God, and you will have peace because you can confidently move forward when choosing between two good things. Peace doesn't come from the perfect job. Peace comes from a life that's lived with God-glorifying purpose. So what does it look like for us to take advantage of our access to the Father? 
Here's some thoughts. Make a plan to pray. Put it in your schedule. You and I, we are finite, we are weak, we need help. A good way to develop a habit is to add it to something that you're already doing. It becomes natural in your life. You can pray while you brush your teeth. You can pray while you're walking to class. You can pray while you're washing your dishes. Maybe we'll help you wash your dishes every day. Pick something you do every day and make that a prayer time. I'd also really encourage you to learn about who your father is. You know, not a single woman in this room has a perfect father. And some of us might have downright bad fathers. Our earthly fathers, they really impact our understanding of who our heavenly father is. So when you're reading your Bible or listening to a sermon, ask yourself, what does this teach me about who God is, who God my father is? You could practice this in the car on your way back to campus today or at lunch. You can go back through your main session passages, through the passages that the workshops were on, and you can ask each other, what did you learn about who God is from this? At the end of this section, Jesus makes it very clear that he's going to return to God. In 28, he says, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. The disciples didn't need to have anxiety when they heard this statement. They could have peace because they had the Father's love. And they could have peace because Jesus wasn't leaving the world in defeat. He was leaving the world victorious. Peace is possible in Jesus even when he is physically absent. So far that we can see, we've seen that we can have peace and take heart because the resurrection is coming and because we have complete access to the Father. And this is our third and our last point. Take heart, your victory is secure. We're going to look at verses 28 through 33. It's going to look to the disciples like Jesus was not victorious when he's led away by soldiers and when he's hung on a criminal's cross. But even before that happened, Jesus claims victory. He told the disciples that he had overcome the world here, before the cross. And we can see that Jesus' victory is secure in two ways. It is certain and it is perfect. Jesus' victory is certain. Let's read verses 30 through 32 again. And the disciples said, Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I don't know about you, but something I'm often curious about when I'm reading the scripture is the tone that Jesus is using when he talks to his disciples. And I honestly think we're really tempted to read Jesus with exasperation or disapproval when the disciples don't understand something that seems really clear to us on this side of the cross. But I don't think that's how Jesus is responding here. I don't think he's frustrated with the disciples. I imagine him saying this with gentleness because he knows their hearts and he knows how they're going to act after his arrest and crucifixion. And honestly, 
because it doesn't actually matter what they think about him. He can be gentle because he's confident in his victory. In our culture, you know, when we're confident, we can be brash and harsh. The scriptures testify that Jesus is humble and gentle in his confidence. So how can Jesus be so confident with his imperfect followers? They're going to clearly struggle after Jesus is arrested, right? Jesus tells them here, they're going to scatter and they're going to leave him alone. And we know from the rest of the Bible that they'll deny him. They'll hide in their homes. Even after Jesus told them he would rise from the dead, they're even going to have trouble believing when they see Jesus in the flesh after the resurrection. Thomas is going to ask to touch Jesus' hands inside to prove that he's real. But their belief does not stop or cause Jesus to have victory over the grave. Jesus' victory is not dependent on the strength of our faith. And perhaps you can often feel like the disciples, oh, I get it. I get it. And then when push comes to shove, you act differently than you just said. I can say, I do understand that praying to God gives me peace. It's a privilege, it's a joy, and it's like the air I need to breathe. I get it, I believe it, I want it. And then I can promptly live outside of that truth. I make plans and lists and consult with myself rather than the Lord. How I act does not change the truth about prayer. Likewise, the disciples' actions do not change what is true about Jesus. He will be victorious, whether or not they stand firm in the belief while he's in the grave. And we know for a fact this is true because the disciples fail, and they fail exactly the way Jesus says they will, and it has no impact on Jesus' victory. He does not have to stay in the grave longer because they don't have enough Christian spirit, as if you know he was Santa Claus, an elf, and he just needed a little more singing to get his sleigh flying. No, Jesus stayed in the grave the exact amount of time required of him. And this is important because it means that Jesus' victory was exactly and totally his own. Have peace. What you do will not change the end result. Jesus will win, whether you like it or not. Jesus is the victor. No one can claim otherwise. And it's not because of who follows him and what they do or don't do but it's because Jesus has won. Jesus' victory is certain. What you believe does not change what is true. If someone here is searching for truth this weekend, let me tell you, this is it. You don't have to believe it for it to be true, but you can choose to believe that Jesus has won that his death on the cross paid the penalty for sin, and that by raising again from the grave, three days later, he proved that he was God and that his sacrifice worked. And you will only gain. This peace that we have been talking about can be yours. Security can be yours. Hope is yours. Joy is yours. And if you are a Christian here, take peace. If Jesus' victory is certain and we get his victory, our victory is certain. You will fail. You will not act in concurrence with your beliefs all the time. 
you do not have to win your victory. Jesus won it completely on his own. Jesus' victory is secure because it is certain, and in that we can take peace. We can also take peace because Jesus' victory is perfect. Let's read the culmination of Jesus' message at the top of your outline again. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus again acknowledges that this world is a hard place to live in. In the world, you will have tribulation. And Jesus knows that the disciples, like ourselves, we're going to be really prone to worry. When they experience this tribulation, they are going to question, would this be better if Jesus was here with us? How will I manage this? And Jesus gives them a preemptive encouragement. Take heart. I have overcome the world. And notice the verb here, I have. Jesus has not yet risen from the grave. How can Jesus claim to have already overcome the world? Jesus has perfectly met every challenge that the world has thrown at him. He's lived the perfect life. He has not sinned once from his infancy to his final moments. Jesus' victory over the grave was sure. Jesus' victory over the world was sure. So why do I say that this is perfect? The grammar tells us that it is. I have overcome the world. This is the perfect tense. (laughs) Clever, yes. It's something that has been accomplished whose effects are presently felt. So in New Testament scripture, when the perfect tense is used, there's generally a lot of theological significance wrapped up in that idea. So when Jesus says, I have overcome the world, he's trying to convey a bulwark, an anchor for us in our faith. This statement happens before the cross, before the resurrection. Jesus is speaking as if the resurrection has already been accomplished and its effects are felt in the present for the disciples. Jesus is so sure of his victory that he can say, it's already done, and you should live like it's already done. My husband is the most confident person I know. I have seen him confidently approach all sports, all types of interactions with people. In fact, he even makes phone calls with ease. (laughs) But this is more than confidence, right? This is absolute certainty. Confidence can fail, like the time my husband confidently tried skiing. Certainty cannot. This certainty should give you peace. Jesus' victory was perfect. It was done before he had even been arrested. He was victorious before time began. He continues to be victorious today. You are victorious if you are in Jesus. What does it look like? for us to live on earth in this certain, perfect victory. I would encourage you to boldly celebrate Jesus' victory. Jesus is our certain, perfect Savior. His work is complete. We get this victory, and it's worth celebrating. Next weekend is Easter. This is a perfect opportunity to celebrate Jesus' victory. Attend a worship service 
at a good Bible teaching church. You can ask your staff for recommendations for one near you. Sing songs and hymns about Jesus' victory over death. Eat with your friends and your family and talk about the victory of Jesus on the cross and in the tomb. If Jesus' victory is secure, if it's certain and perfect, this is something others need to hear. They need the peace that you have. Remember, confidence doesn't mean harsh and brash. Gently and kindly engage with your neighbors and friends, with your family, with the truth of the gospel. Jesus' victory does not depend on us, but it's a joy and it's a privilege to get to be a part of others understanding it. When you are struggling to believe that peace is possible, remember that in both the big things, in health struggles, in unmet desires, in the uncertainty of the future, and in the small struggles, in tests, disagreements, life's inconveniences, Jesus will bring victory. It may come on earth, or we may not see it complete until heaven, but Jesus' victory is secure. So when the world is spinning out of control and peace seems impossible, place a single thought, a single finger, on the truth of Jesus' victory. Tell yourself, Jesus has overcome this. And one more deep breath, Jesus has overcome this. Peace is possible in Jesus, even when he's physically absent. You know, when I wrote my phone number on my daughter's hand, it did more than just prevent her from being lost in the crowd. My daughter could look down at her hand at any point in Disney World when the crowd was too busy or too loud, when I was just a little bit too far, a little bit too much distance was between us and take peace, right there was her reminder. I would never be too far. These are the words that you can look at and take peace. In the midst of your trouble, take heart. Remember the resurrection. Remember your father. Remember Jesus' victory. Let's pray. Jesus, Father, thank you. Thank you that this week we can celebrate the resurrection uh, with our brothers and sisters around the world. Thank you that you had lived the perfect life, that you died in our place, that you rose again and proved yourself God and that your sacrifice worked. Father, I ask that we would remember the resurrection. I ask that we would believe that you are our Father and that we would live like our victory is certain. We pray these things in Jesus' name, in alignment with all that is true about who Jesus is. Amen.